You're listening to the Public Safety Drone Flight Podcast, your source of real-world, actionable aviation information for fire departments, police departments, and law enforcement agencies. This is the critical information you need to be an exceptional pilot and help save lives with flight. And now, your host, Public Safety Flight Chief Pilot, Steve Rode. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org. When it comes to someone with an extensive resume in law enforcement, Tom Madigan has a bio that reads like a book of an expert. His experience runs from find them, catch them, extract them, test them, to lock them up. In other words, patrol, detective, SWAT, crime lab, and corrections. And today, we can add aviation to that list. With 25 years under his belt, he has finally landed as the assistant sheriff at the Alameda County Sheriff's Office in California. He's responsible for the aviation program that includes a big fleet of drones, pilots, airplanes, and at least one helicopter. Tom is a private pilot and holds a Part 107 certificate. Assistant Sheriff Madigan has been critically involved in many efforts to integrate drones into public safety. If there's an important group to present to or advise, he's done it. Now, I invited Tom on to pick his brain about what an exceptional COA flight program looks like in law enforcement so others can follow his lead. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts with us today. Steve, thank you for, well, first of all, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. Um, and, and we're, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you today. And, and, and I'll tell you, uh, we, we, um, we, we were early adopters. And so we've learned from a lot of our mistakes and we tried to share with others so they don't have to go through some of the hurdles that we went through. Uh, but 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 I do appreciate and, and we're grateful to be uh, uh, with you today. You know, you're someone I respect and point to as an individual that has a good grasp on running a drone flight operation under a certificate of waiver or authorization, otherwise known as a COA. Is it hard work to run such a well-recognized aviation operation? So um, it, it 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 is challenging. It is challenging, but but. Just to to go back historically, you know, when we started and, and how we got to where, where we're at is when, when we first started, it, it was the only way to run a drone op- operation. Um, it was before, you know, you could you could get a Part 107 certificate. We um, our agency in 2015 um, applied for what was known at the time as a training COA. So, and, and that took us almost a year. In fact, we applied in 2014 and got it in 2015. So it took us a year to get a training COA. And we were the first agency um, in the United States to get a training COA in, in control their space because our training center happened to fall within um, a class Delta airspace of the Livermore airport, which is, is about four miles away from us. And, and let's inform listeners that Alameda County runs from San Francisco down towards San Jose, out over Livermore. You, you've got a lot of populated areas. 
Yeah. So, so, so that, that's a fact. And, and, um, the San Francisco Bay area has, um, arguably some of the most complex airspace in, in the United States, along with, you know, um, the other class Bravo airports throughout the United States, you know, the, the big, big cities, uh, we fall under that class Bravo, uh, for the most part, we've had to operate it in it on occasion, but, uh, we, we, we fall under it. Um, we have, um, Oakland's, uh, class Charlie airspace and that we fly in a lot. Um, our folks were flying in, in San Jose's class Charlie airspace under an addendum to our COA just this morning for a, a high risk operation. But, um, in addition to that, we have, um, Hayward's uh, class, um, Delta Livermore's class Delta, and then um, Oakland has a Class E extension that 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 goes active at nighttime when Hayward's Airport closes. So, that I just addressed a new group of remote pilots. We call our folks remote pilots because we have manned pilots and we have remote pilots, and there is a distinction and there's a difference. And I think it's important to note that. Um, I just I told of this new group yesterday. Um, who all have their Part 107 certificates. We require that as, as a component of be, being a member of our team, even though we operate under the COA, because to me, it validates that they understand and they've been tested, you know, and understand the airspace and, and, and the different requirements to, to fly a small UAV. We also require them to go through our own self-certification training, but we could, we could talk about that later. But um, I guess in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is we do operate in complicated airspace, but we do it over and over again. So once they understand it, 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 it initially seems very overwhelming to, to start learning about the different airspaces and what requirements there are to operate within them. But once they've done it 20 times in the same place, they get it. They, they understand it. And um, our, our primary goal is to, um, to operate a safe program and safely integrate unmanned aircraft with manned aircraft. And, and our remote pilots work routinely with our manned pilots. And so they they have to deconflict the airspace. So, you know, our folks will be working at 200 feet. The helicopter will be working at between 600 and 1,000 feet. And, 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 and then there's airplanes in, in the mix too. Um, so it's a delicate dance that's done, but it can be done in a, in a thoughtful way in a coordinated manner uh, by, you know, sticking strictly to uh, the terms of the COA that we have. Um, so, so we started off with um, a training COA. And then from there, we were given a, a jurisdictional COA. That was before the broad area COA exists. That was before it existed. So um, it was specific to the um, airspace within uh, above our county. Um, now it's, it's much easier, you know, for, for, I, I believe most agencies can get by with a, a broad area COA that gives them the class, the uncontrolled or class G airspace throughout the nation. You know, the, the night flights, the, um, beyond visual line of sight waiver, the, uh, flights over human beings in emergency situations. I think most places can get by with that. Um, but others, you know, like us uh, who are working in more complex airspace, they have to then go out and get a separate jurisdictional COA. 
Um, we we find you know many benefits to to um, to having a koa. Let me get some uh, initial questions in first. You probably would believe that I hear from people that the reason they decide to go the koa route is because they think they can do whatever they want as a public safety flight operation. Is that a realistic point of view? No, I mean, that's not realistic because, um, you know, the, the missions that obviously, you know, you can only, they can only be flown for a legitimate governmental, uh, function. Um, and there's, there's also some fairly, I wouldn't call them burdensome, but, there's, you know, monthly reporting requirements. There's a, the requirement to file um, a NOTAM. Um, you know, those are things that, that don't necessarily take place in the Part 107 world. But, you know, I, I believe, you know, as, as a remote pilot and a private pilot, you know, before I take off on a, a cross-country flight, I'm checking the NOTAMs for where I'm leaving and where I'm going because I want to know if there's a, a, if there's a, a, a UAS operation uh, along my route and really especially where I'm taking off and landing. I mean, that's important information for a pilot to know. So, and that's, uh, that's, uh, it's a requirement under the, the COA, but it, it also, um, there's waiver, you know, there, there's, if the safety of the operation could be compromised, there's waivers from filing the NOTAM, but we find it, um, the, the notification of the tower and filing the NOTAM is important, um, important steps in, in a safe operation. Um, and, and we have a very large team. So even as people are responding to the scene, others can notify the tower, others can file the NOTEM for us. Um, and so it, um, I, I don't see any downside. To, I don't see any downside to it. Um, you know, it's just, to create awareness to to pilots flying through the area, they're going to want to know that there's a UAS flying, even though you're yeah. generally below where they're flying. I've actually had departments say to me that the reason they went the COA route was because their pilots could not pass the Part 107 exam or they didn't want to pay for the Part 107 exam. Is that uh, reasonable? I think that's foolish. Um uh, I think that the Part 107 exam is a, a barometer that someone is understanding the information. You know, we, we the Airborne Public Safety Association puts on a Part 107 class. We have our people go through that. Not every single person. We, we, our our um, team, we have approximately 25 remote pilots, but sometimes we just brought on some more people, people promoted out of the unit and are doing different things. Um, cause it's busy. They're busy all the time. I mean, it is, it is a lot of work that they're doing, but, um, every single one of them, we've provided them with a study guide. We've sent them through a course. We've even hosted the course and, and every single one of them has passed. And that is knowledge that is critical in order to fly safely. You know, the notion that you can just, you know, put a, UAS up in the air without some forethought and, and some planning, you know, checking the weather and checking, uh, you know, is there a TFR in place? You know, is there, is there a TFR in place? Um, you know, we have a checklist that our remote pilots have to, f have to follow. It's similar to a checklist that a, um, a, a, a pilot would, would, would follow. In fact, 
we, when we first started the program, we relied on our members of our air squadron, who at the time were, many of them were volunteer pilots. And one of them is a, was a United Airlines 787 captain. And he says, where's your checklist? I said, well, we don't have a checklist. He helped us develop a checklist. And, he, he, and, and, and they're all required to, as part of the policy, to, to, to look at it and, and before they fly. You know, there's certain things. There are certain times when we may not be able to fly, you know, if, if it's, you know, IFR conditions or, or you know, the, the winds are, are so extreme that they exceed the capacity of the, of the aircraft or, you know, we're so close to an airport. And that's why, I mean, just part 107 is just scratching the surface. But sh- that to me is an indicator that they have an understanding of the weather and the airspace and, and then the requirements of the UAS. Of course, they, they are a bit different with the, the COA. So I think that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it's an investment in the future of your program, making sure that minimally they understand the basics. Uh, because if you have an incident or accident, the FAA, I mean, they view these are aircraft, right? And if someone gets hurt, if someone gets hurt, they're going to they're going to investigate that. And so to have someone who doesn't have the the knowledge and experience, I think I, I think doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think the other thing is, is, is the supervisors and managers have to understand it, too. Right. Our our people have the sole authority to just just like in an airplane or a helicopter, they have the sole authority to decline a mission for uh, you know, safety reasons, weather reasons, uh, you know, problem with the, the airframe reasons. And, and a, a, a captain can't come up to a deputy sheriff and say, you will fly this right now. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, and it shouldn't happen. Um, and that's why it's so important. There, The Airborne Public Safety Association puts on, um, you know, courses for, for managers of aviation units. And I think those are important courses to to attend. Um, so, so you don't get into a predicament where, cause law enforcement, you know, it, it's, it's a paramilitary organization. Um, you know, the, the captain's used to telling the Lieutenant and Sergeant and deputy sheriff what to do, you know? So when the captain hears, I'm not doing something, you know, that's going to, uh, you know, cause some heartburn for, for that captain. But, but, but if everyone understands that, um, you know, there's times, you know, we have an area in our service area that is that is on the departure end of, of the Hayward Airport, and there's some homes tucked right down there. And it's just not practical to fly a UAS there. If we were to do that, if we were to do that, the the only time we would do that would be that they would have to shut that airport down. I mean, they, they would have to shut it down. And, and I'll tell you, that's happened before. Um, we, we, we've flown drones at the Oakland International Airport where we had a vehicle pursuit where um, one of our deputy sheriffs assigned to the Oakland Airport tried to stop a vehicle. The suspect rammed the gate, drove across the active runway of the International Airport. Wow. And and then on the um, je- along the jetty of the where the bay is, and it was a dust storm and, and the deputy lost sight of the suspect who um, we found out a day later had jumped in the water and, and drowned. 
but we didn't know that for the day. They shut down that runway, that active runway, and we flew drones up and down that area looking for the suspect. And then, and then, and they had had um, the the commercial aircraft, and these are large aircraft. These are large aircraft flying in and out of that international airport. Take off on a different runway. So that was the only time <laughs> that has happened. But um, so what I'm trying to say is um, there has to be forethought anytime you deploy a UAS, because if you're flying it near an airport, you know, that could be a real big problem and it's not lawful, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's not, you have to have the permissions to do it. And, and our COA allows us in coordination with the tower, you know, to do things like that in the most extreme circumstances. And, and I don't envision that happening very often. It all, it probably happened almost never for, for people, but, the point is, is, is that, um, you know, the COA spells out where and when we can fly, what coordination we need to do with the tower, what NOTAMs we need to, to, to file. Um, so we're proponents of the, of, of, of the COA, uh, is the monthly reporting system a little burdensome? Yes, it is, but, um, but we use it. And, um, you know, the other thing is, is, is for us, you know, that Lance system, um, under 107, it it's not helpful to us around a lot of the airports we have to fly around. I mean, when you look at the grid, it's showing zeros in areas where we, we routinely fly UAS. And so mm-hmm. the COA allows for that. The COA also allows for us to, to seek emergency addendums, you know, to the COA and TFR waivers. Um, and we've done that. We've done that for, uh, did it recently for a presidential visit. We received a TFR waiver for, for some UAS flights during a presidential visit. We receive uh, TFR waivers for um, um, uh, thermal imaging and hotspot sensing and, and mapping and large fires that have taken place in California over the past few years. And then we receive uh, TFR waivers, um, or not TFR waivers, uh, airspace waivers just today to fly down in San Jose. So it takes a little bit of time to do it, but, but, um, it's, it's important to do, I feel. So you've also managed a manned aircraft in your flight operation. Have you observed a cultural difference between the manned pilots and the remote pilots that come in with just their 107 training? And you know, the pilot, do the pilots, do the manned pilots with experience look at aviation differently than somebody who's just coming in as a drone pilot? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So I think if we if we go back a little bit, um, I think initially when um, we first got into the drone business, that there was a a um, le- actually a legitimate concern by the man pilots, not just ours, but throughout the region that, um, you know, we're coming after their jobs, right. And that, that we're infringing upon the work that they do. And, and to me, that's, um, couldn't be further from the truth. I, I believe that the, the careful, thoughtful integration of man and unmanned that drones complement the work that our, our man pilots do in the air. And, and I do believe that our people and, and the, the, the aviation programs around us, that they understand that. I'll give you an example. Um, 
We had a, a situation where um, uh, our deputies attempted to stop someone and the person fled and he um, broke into a house that was occupied by um, uh, two elderly women. And, and he was in that house. So we thought he had taken them hostage. The helicopter got there very, very quickly. Very quickly, the helicopter was overhead and providing air support and, 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 and watching that perimeter, watching the windows before the drones got there. So the helicopter is there quicker because it's in the air. So um, once the helicopter gets there and is on scene, then the drones start showing up. If you have drones strategically placed throughout your cities or counties, much like a canine officer, right? Much like a canine or, or um, you know, a school resource officer or whatever, you know. Um, so the drone gets there. Um, they get up in the air and they now take over the, the scene from the helicopter. And the helicopter moves on to what's next. So now the drone is there. The We, we usually... We, we don't fly one drone on things like this. We'll have three drones going. Um, you know, one to maintain uh, the, the uh, uh, overwatch of the residence itself. Then another watching the perimeter in case someone were to flee. And then in this situation, a third one to go inside the house and try to find the person. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's, there's not one tool for the job, right? It's there's multiple drones for, for different types of, of work that needs to be done. But um, so so back to the question. Yeah, initially I thought there was skepticism amongst the man pilots, but now I think that their their feelings for the most part have evolved and they understand that the drone is not gonna take their job from them. It's really not, but it will it will absolutely it's a force multiplier, it will complement the work that they're doing. Um, could there be a time, you know, when we, we get to this beyond visual line of sight and, and um, you know, where the remote ID and, 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 and when this drone could follow a vehicle pursuit, maybe, maybe, maybe in the future that could change. But right now, you know, to me, they just they complement each other. And, and that's the message that 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 I believe we need to get out. So so they're all working as a team. As a manned airplane pilot, uh, you know what it's like. You're, you're up there flying around 1,500, 2,000 feet. It's like you have a widescreen TV. And with a drone, it's almost like you're looking through a straw, you know, a magnifying glass at a, at a scene. I just wish there were more operations that could uh, operate cooperatively. I think uh, I agree with that. And I think that, that in the future there there will be. Because if, if you look around, um, you know, I think there's – about uh, I I know there's about eighteen thousand plus you know law enforcement agencies in the nation. I, I want to say there's about fifty thousand public safety agencies. I just saw a slide from the FAA about that the other day, and and only five hundred ish have manned aviation programs, and, and a lot of those aren't even full time manned aviation programs. So uh, you know to to me um, you know these UABs you know they just help detect dangers that our people just can't see. And, and they just make good business sense. They're really cost effective. You know, I mean, we don't buy these super expensive. We, we did. We, 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 I get teased to this day by, by my folks for saying I wasted a hundred thousand dollars of county money. They call them the, the two fifty thousand dollars paperweights. Um, 
you know, because the early adopters, um, you know, oh, we need, you know, uh, military grade, blah, 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 blah. Well, that was an experiment that didn't work out. And, and so, you know, we use just the, some of the basic, uh, we do, we do use DJ products. We are mm-hmm. testing other products. We, we do have some Skydio uh, things we're, we're, we're using and, and we're, the reason we use DJ is because they work. Um, and I know the vast majority of public safety agencies use DJI, but but once something comes along that's just as cost effective and works just as good, if not better, mm-hmm. we're not married to DJI. We're, we're, we will gladly try something different. But um, So uh, I've been telling people, if you're looking to start a program, just buy something that is priced at a point where it's disposable for you. 100%. I agree with that 100%. I'm a, I'm a big fan of... A crawl, walk, run, um, and and to go out and uh, start out with a you know Matrice three hundred you know that that's I, I don't know the exact, probably thirty thousand dollars with everything with all the cameras and all all the all the payloads all the different systems you need um, it's going to set you back thirty grand to to me you know the the um, a Mavic Zoom or a Mavic Dual, a Mavic Mini. We actually are now giving out a Mavic Dual, a Mavic Zoom, and a Mavic Mini. So they have three. That's the basic equipment that, that our people have, that they have them with them when they're out in the field or wherever they're at, they have it. And then if, 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 if the incident needs something more than that or becomes protracted, then we have these vehicles equipped with, you know, TVs in the back, charging stations, have the larger drones. And then we bring to the scene. But, um, you know, for the most part, those uh, little drones that are very cost effective, they work really, really well. I mean, when it's pouring rain, they're not going to be working. But, you know, I'd say 85% of the time, they do just fine. Um, there's no perfect um, There's no perfect solution. There's some drone operations out there that have actually lost their COA status. Uh, why do you think that happens? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not aware of the specifics of the folks that lost their, their COA status, but I, we work a lot with Mr. Pansky from the FAA and Mike O'Shea and um, uh, Charles Warner from, uh, you know, drone responders. And um, I, I would imagine that they're just not complying with the terms and conditions of their COA. They're not doing the, you know, reporting that they're required to do. Um, you know, which is a shame. I mean, you know, under the, the public COA, you, you know, you can self-certify your, you know, you self-certify your program. That that could be an advantage. You know, you 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 have the the limited operations over 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 people. You have the night operations. You can get the beyond visual line of sight waiver. Uh, you know, you can exceed the 55 pound, uh, you know, uh, uh, rule under 107 if you need to. We don't. But if, if you needed to. Um, so I, I don't I, I don't understand it. I mean, the only thing I could think people say is uh, the pathway, you know, to 107 appears to be easier than the, the pathway to get a COA. But I, I don't agree with that. You know, the we've had to redo our COAs. The, the process has been streamlined. I mean, there's templates out there, especially for the agencies that are going to get a broad area COA. Um, you know, that that that. I mean, you could fill that out in an hour. It's not that hard to fill out. And, and I do feel, you know, I mean, when you have a Part 107 certificate, it's your own certificate. It's your own ticket, so to speak. You know, I, I feel that, that flying under the COA 
I, I, this is just my feeling, you know, provides the individual, you know, more protection, uh, you know, flying under COA than flying under Part 107. Um, but again, we require the 107 certificate. It's, it's, it's a requirement. Um, to me, it's, it's, it's just a barometer that they understand the, the information. It's a baseline for, for learning. Um, and, and there is, you know, the courses, their self-study. Our initial guys did a self-study guide. They, you know, we got them the uh, prep wear or whatever that's called, and and they um, they did it on their own. And and then uh, now we off now we host the the course with um, APSA at our facilities, and so you know they they can do that as well. So I, I just don't think it's I don't getting the 107 is is a simple process takes a little learning and the co-op is just a little more complicated, but I think it, it gives people um, additional um, advantages and in, in some protections as well. Do you have somebody who's the responsible person? Maybe that's you for the COA that administratively makes sure that everybody's living up to what it says. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's not me. Um, I, I, it used, it used to be me, but it's, it's, I just, I have, when I, I got this promotion to assistant sheriff, I have a lot more responsibilities now. And the 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 UAV and the aviation it's my it's my labor of love. You know, it's my it's my passion. Um, so so the sheriff great great very graciously allows me to to keep involved in it. But no, I have a number of so so most of our people are. Um, oh, it's an ancillary assignment form. But I have a few that it's their full-time job and kind of managing the day-to-day operation of the program. And they're responsible for that. We have a, a monthly training day. Um, you know, we go over um, parts of the COA every single training day. Every training day we have, we have a block on the COA. And then we'll also have a block on some 107 stuff, some air, airspace stuff every single day. Because in, in addition to debriefing the prior missions from the month before and then, and then talking about the future we, we always um, try to include an hour on, on going, let's go over the COA and that, and, and, and they get tired of hearing it, but, um, but it's important, right? I mean, it's important that they, they read it, they, they understand it. Um, they can ask questions about it. And then we spend a lot of time on airspace too, just cause it's, it's, I mean, if, if it was all uncontrolled airspace, it'd be easy, but, but it's not. So we have to talk about the nuances of, of, of where these, these missions are and stuff like that. So, so you, you have all this experience. Uh, you are at the top of this pyramid of, of experience. What is the top lesson you wish all new departments knew or understood before excitingly launching their new COA drone program because what a salesperson or a friend told them? Um, I, I, I would say um, take it slow. Um, the roadmap has been developed from other agencies, talk to other agencies, learn from their mistakes, um, and, and, and don't try to, um, you know, j- j- I, w- I would just say the biggest thing is, is, is a pathway already exists. Um, take it slow, training, training, training. I mean, you're, we, we have a monthly training day that our people are required to attend. It's an eight hour training day. I'm not saying other agencies have to do that, but, you know, that's a perishable skill, right? Flying drones is a perishable skill. Um, you know, I used to I used to fly almost every day. Every day I'd be practicing. I don't get to do that anymore. But, um, 
you know, the, the training component of this is key. Um, setting a policy that spells out what missions your agency is authorized is key because when we started this, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we brought in um, pilots, SWAT team guys, bomb squad guys, search and rescue guys, detectives, um, crime lab people. And we said, okay, this is what we have in your world. How can you use this? And, and we sort of developed it from there. Um, Cause I don't know, I'm not a bomb squad guy. I don't know what those guys need. Um, they tell me what they need. Right. And I said, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, and so listen to, I'd say, li listen to others who have been through it before and, and just go, go slow uh, have a good policy, engage in robust com community outreach so everyone knows what you're doing. I think the, the, you know, when we started this, there was a San Francisco Chronicle article that said, East Bay at the forefront of the drone debate. And we spent all this time, you know, I remember saying, you know, as important as it is to understand what a drone is, it's equally as important to understand what it's not. These are not predator drones. I think that... I think I really think once Amazon started talking about delivering packages with drones, it all that hyperbole is sort of past us. So I don't think people have to deal with that anymore. But they still do have to deal with the the privacy issues that they're the concerns you know folks have that you know we're going to be spying on people, and, and that's just not a reality, right? These are these really, if you think about it, the, they said, oh, there's surveillance tools. They're really not surveillance. I mean, something stays in the air for 20 minutes or 30. It's not a surveillance tool. Um, you know, 400 feet above the sky, we can see it. It's, it's just not. But um, engaging the, the um, local governing bodies to explain what you're doing and then um, just setting out a, a good policy, strong policy on when you're going to use them. And that's an individual de decision by the, the agency, you know, what we're going to use them for. We do not use them for crowd control. We, we do not. Um, other agencies, you know, will, will use them for crowd control. Um, obviously, you're not supposed to fly over large groups of people, but you can offset and stuff like that. But but that's that's a decision that that, that our sheriff made. And after, you know, um, when we initially talked to the ACLU about what we we're trying to do, um, I will say in, in the context of a crowd control situation, if, if, if a life threatening event were to occur, then we would use it, but we don't use it for crowd monitoring. Um, and I feel strongly about that, but other, other places do. If you're a small department and you might have two or three or four people that might be pilots under the heading of crawl, walk, run, would it be better for them just to start with part 107 and get some experience before jumping into the COA? Well, I mean, I really think you could do both. I mean, I think you could, you could do both uh, simultaneously. I mean, you know, apply for the COA while you're, you're having your folks get, get their part 107 training done. Um, I don't see, I don't see harm to that. It, it's really not. I mean, I remember when we first started applying for these COAs, it was a lot of work. But, um, you know, when we have to renew these things, it's, it's really pretty straightforward. Um, and, and there's templates out there on how to, how to fill that out. We, we used to help other agencies uh, fill, fill out the stuff, stuff for them um, just to help get them, get them going. Um, so I think I could do both personally. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. I, I appreciate your advice. And you're the sage uh person need people need to talk to when they need, they need the straight facts thank you uh, steve for the opportunity to to be a part of this
Um, we, we believe strongly in UAS technology and we want to be advocates for the technology because we we feel that it helps keep people in the fields safe and also members of the public. So th- thank you for the opportunity. Hi, this is Steve Rode, your friendly chief pilot here at the Public Safety Flight website. Be sure to visit psflight.org to get in on my private email list, read all the latest posts, or ask me all of your public safety drone questions. That's psflight.org, or if that trips you up, you can land in the right place by using publicsafetyflight.org.